Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Okay, Ben, here we go. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. Today, I'm speaking with Ben Eifert, founder and CIO of QVR Advisors. Ben is my first repeat guest on the podcast, making his first appearance in season two. When I asked listeners who they wanted for season three, he was again high on the list. In this episode, we take things in a bit of a different direction. Rather than a normal interview, I used this opportunity to ask Ben about his opinion on a number of different trade ideas ranging from covered calls to shorting VIX CTPs. Ben walks me through the subtleties of each trade and why the P&L of what might look like a simple trade can be incredibly nuanced. Towards the end of the conversation, we turn to broader market topics and discuss the general impact of structured product desks and options dealers, as well as Ben's view as to whether March 2020 will create a lasting impact on volatility markets. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ben Eifert. Ben, welcome back to season three, first repeat guest. When I was asking people who they wanted to come on season three, you were in high demand on Twitter. You've certainly made a name for yourself. I was thinking, I don't know if I've had enough guests on to really do a repeat. So I don't know whether I was just like insulted that people hadn't even heard season two yet. But I think this is going to be a really fun one. So for guests who are tuning in for the first time to hear Ben, I would say, please go back to season two first and listen to Ben's great episode. We go over his background, how he thinks about the world of options. In this episode, we're going to do something a little different. I'm calling this episode Bad Ideas with Ben Eifert because I'm basically going to tee up a whole bunch of trading ideas and Ben's going to tell me why they are a bunch of bad ideas. So Ben, are you ready to dive in and break my heart here? I'm excited, Corey. This sounds like a lot of fun. Thanks again for having me. It seems like you enjoy doing this on Twitter as well. So I figured I'd give you a little bit of an audio form to have some fun. So let's dive in. Sounds good. Hopefully with some easy ones here. So Ben, I've done a bit of analysis on a stock. It's currently trading at $70. And I am a very happy buyer at 50. I think this stock is a great steal at 50. Should I just start selling some puts down at 50 and just get paid to wait? It's a good question. And it's one that you get a lot. I mean, the answer here is maybe this is one of the most common framings that you see for option trades from retail brokers or institutional overlay providers, the way that they pitch option trading to clients. It's like, oh, you should be willing to buy the stock at 50. Why not sell that put? So like this should be a Captain Obvious statement, but it depends on the price. 
you should sell an option if you're getting paid enough premium to justify the risk that you're taking when you sell the option, kind of first and foremost, not based on where you might be willing to buy a stock or something like that. So options have negatively asymmetric risk, which means you can typically make a lot more on a long option position than you can lose on the premium and vice versa. If you're short the option, you can lose a lot more than you can possibly make on the premium. And you're supposed to get paid a risk premium for that. So let's take your example, the stock's at 70 bucks. Let's say the three month 50 strike puts are 25 cents. Say you sell those, terrible earnings come out, the stock barfs down to 50 bucks next month, those puts could be trading at 10 bucks and you sold them at 25 cents. So now you've lost 40 times more money than you thought you ever could possibly make on the trade or that it's a limited win thing when you sell that put, you can make 25 cents. So that big stock move down might not have been a likely outcome, but what was the probability of it happening versus what did you get paid on the option? That's really the key question. If there was a 10% chance of that event happening, then you sold a put for 25 cents that should have been worth at least a dollar because the $10 was the loss you took when it happened. And like in practice, you obviously don't literally know the probability. You might have a view on it. You might be tempted to say, oh, well, the market was relatively efficient. It always offers you a fair price for this. Well, but if the put was 10 cents, would you still sell it and just say, oh, that's probably fair? Like, what if it was one cent? Would you just figure that's probably fair and you'd sell it? If you want to buy the stock at 50 bucks, that's great. Put a little alert in that pings you if the stock goes down to 50 bucks and you can go buy the stock at 50 bucks. You don't need options for that. Whether or not it would make sense to sell the $50 put or just in general to trade an option, it depends on the price of that option versus the payoff that that option offers and whether that makes sense in the context of your view on the stock. So let's take the flip side of that trade then. I have to assume a bad idea flipped. Maybe it's a good idea. I don't know. Probably not in the world of markets. But let's say I bought a stock at 50 and my analysis tells me it's worth 70. And if I'm good selling it at 70, why not sell calls that are covered? I got a covered call situation right now and just collect the premium along the way while the stock goes up. And if I get taken out at 70, great. That was my view as to what it should have been priced anyway. It's really just the flip side of the same question. So it depends on the price that you get paid to sell that that 70 strike call. Would you sell the calls for a nickel, like for a penny? I mean, say you sell the three month call for a nickel with the stock at 50 bucks and those great earnings come out, it rips to your target. Like that call might be worth five bucks now and you just lost a hundred times as much as you possibly could have made on the option sale. And sure, you're happy about the P&L on the, your long position in the stock, but what was the point of selling that option for a nickel to lose a bunch of money on it? Versus maybe if you got paid a dollar for it or $2 for it, like that could have been a reasonable ex-ante trade, even if it turned out you lost money on it because the stock went up a ton. It all comes back to what's the upside downside? How much is the market compensating you for taking that short optionality risk? And is it a reasonable in your view? It's tempting to think there's always a lot of extra risk premium and option prices because retail brokers and overlay managers are going to tell you that because they're pushing a product. And in some market environments, that has been true, especially historically, if you look at, say, from the early 90s through 97 or 98, there was a lot of option risk premium. There was, again, a lot of option risk premium, say, in 2002, 2003, and again in 2009, 10, 11, 12. But in other market environments, there's not a lot of risk premium. 
and the popularity of short-term option selling strategies relative to the demand for long options is really the driver of that. And over the last several years, short-term option selling strategies have grown massively in popularity. You have huge institutional investors allocating very meaningful amounts of capital to call overwriting or put underwriting on short-dated options. And risk premium, you should not just assume that the market is giving you a good deal to sell an option. You're mentioning the example of I sell something for five cents, I'm collecting this tiny premium and then good earnings, we pop to $70 and all of a sudden my option is worth five, 10 and I've got a multiple loss on that option. Is this really a case of mark to market loss though? Again, if this is a covered call and I'm okay just again, letting the stock go, or is this a situation of European optionality versus American optionality? Or is this truly like you're losing money here? It depends on your perspective. Certainly it is a mark to market loss, but if you didn't have that mark to market loss, you just have more money and then you could go buy some other stock or, I mean, a market to market loss is a real loss on a position that you can exit, I suppose is a really important way to think about that. It's not really a, dis- there'll be a minor difference, sure, between American options and European options. And that's not really too big of a deal. But the point is that when you're trading an option, you're buying or selling a certain price that corresponds to a certain payoff that the market is going to value in a certain way, depending on what happens and entering into a super negatively asymmetric trade for an extremely small limited upside just doesn't make sense in light of the possible loss that you could lose. The analysis is, look, am I getting paid a reasonable premium for the risk that I'm taking? This idea of selling the stock at 70, you can do that. You can own your stock and you can sell it when it gets to 70 and that's fine without losing a bunch of money on an options trade first. Thinking this through, maybe where people might struggle and I'll play the dunce here where I struggle is I read all this literature about harvesting the volatility risk premium. And it seems like to me when you're selling options, you're selling optionality, you are harvesting that volatility risk premium. When I look at something like realized volatility minus VIX, it seems like a great trade over the long run. So it seems like a no brainer. So what am I missing out on here? Why are these ideas not a great idea when it seems like selling vol is a great idea? The VIX example is a really good one. And this, I think, is a common thing that people don't understand. It's a little bit niche. So the VIX is an index that Placebo publishes that everybody really focuses on reflecting short-term implied volatility. But the key thing here is the VIX is actually the market price of something called a one-month variance swap on the S&P 500. So a variance swap is a very specific thing. The payoff of a variance swap is the difference between the square of the initial volatility level traded, which is the variance, and the square of realized volatility over the next month. When we say that a variance swap is convex with respect to volatility in the same way that an option is convex with respect to spot, because as volatility rises, variance rises much faster because the square. So let's say you sold a one-month variance swap at 15 or so in mid-February of this year. Realized volatility over the next month was around 90%, which was pretty high. So 90 is about six times 15. It's tempting to think, oh, if I sold vol at 15 and then vol realized 90, I lost sort of six times my money in some sense of, well, how big was my exposure? I lost six times that. But that's wrong because this is a variance swap. You actually lost 36 times that. Your loss is proportional to the square. And that's really important. Because of that convexity, the price level of a variance swap on the S&P is always at a material premium to 
the at the money implied ball, right? So in normal markets, it might be two or three points above. So the at the money might be 12 and the VIX might be 15. In a higher volatility environment like this, that premium might be five or seven or 10 points because the volatility of volatility is very high and the value of that convexity is extremely high. So if you compare VIX to S&P realized vol, and then you say, oh, well, on average, say between 2018 and 2019, the VIX was two points higher than S&P realized vol, for example. That doesn't mean that you would have made money selling volatility. So you can compare at the money implied vol to realized volatility, or you can compare VIX to realized variance or the square of the VIX to the square of realized variance. And those are apples to apples comparisons. But saying that VIX is two points higher than subsequent realized vol, that may have well been a break even or a money loser on trading at the money straddles, for example. And the huge loss in the volatile periods and the extra negative PL associated with the convexity of the variance swap means that that may have been a break even to a money loser on the selling variance swap also. So really important thing to understand, volatility risk premium historically has been very, very regime dependent. So there have been long regimes. So let's say 2009 to 2013, for example, where the discount of realized volatility to initial levels implied volatility was very high on average. And you were structurally getting paid money when you were harvesting the volatility risk premium, as you said. But even before the March 2020 blow up, that premium had compressed to just about zero in terms of where was implied versus subsequent realized volatility before things got ugly in March. And then, of course, in March, the realized vol was massively higher than the next anti-implied vol. The same thing was true, by the way, in the run-up to the credit crisis. So volatility risk premium converged to essentially zero before the credit crisis happened and then went massively negative. And this is fairly typical in late cycle environments you have compression of risk premium, you have people flooding in to try to sell volatility and make money until there's literally no expected return left selling volatility. And then you have an unwind and then potentially risk premium change. So I think that's really the question from here is, did the events of March 2020 change risk premium on a forward-looking basis? Did it change the nature of sellers and buyers? And I think the jury's still out on that. We can talk a little bit more about that later. That's definitely a thought I'd want to hear your perspective on. Maybe we'll get towards the end, talk about your thoughts going forward. But sort of putting this together, keeping on track, it does sound to me like if VIX minus realized isn't maybe the best measure or a good measure at all of this variant volatility risk premium. But we've heard sort of over time this story of a volatility risk premium being a beneficial source of carry. For investors over the long run, maybe institutional investors who have a long horizon that they can afford to harvest this, a lot of them seem like they've turned on these sort of covered call buy right type strategies to try to harvest this. Putting sort of two and two together, it sounds like I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you might say, hey, maybe covered calls are on the no fly list here. Yeah, I think that certainly was my strong view as of a few months ago. And I think, again, that we probably don't have enough data quite yet to see how the world is resetting after the March events. But I think the way that all this came about was that volatility risk premium is a real thing on average over long periods of time. People have understood that for some time. Around 2012, 2013, 
a lot of the pension fund consultants started to get really good traction, having written white papers about this with their pension fund clients and starting to get big money involved in call overwriting. And eventually, by 2015, 2016, cash secured put selling in big size, and the risk premium started to change. And I think the important thing here to understand is risk premium are not constant, nor should you think of them as constant. They reflect some kind of supply and demand imbalance, maybe associated with behavior or maybe associated with the risk characteristics of a position and how those are beneficial from a hedging perspective. Option markets are deep and liquid, but they're not so deep and flow independent that global pension funds can allocate 10% of their equity-like risk to selling front-month S&P puts and not think that they're going to change the risk premium. And that's our view of really what's happened. The size of that flow had reached, call it $800 million of vega a month in short-term option selling coming out of the whole real money and short volatility, systematic short volatility community, where a vega is just a dollar of exposure to a one ball point move. And that's a huge number that market makers on the ground were sort of choking on the one-way supply of options at the front month. And people just have this assumption that, oh, there's this risk premium because people are buyers of options net. But if you ask a market maker, what is supply and demand in short-term S&P options like, they would say, well, there's massive motivated real price-insensitive sellers and very few buyers. That's not the story that you're supposed to see on the ground in a world where there's risk premium associated with options. Ignoring some of the regime-dependent behavior here, though, I don't know whether we can fully extract that from the picture, because I do think that's a really important point, the supply and demand mechanics that are changing the size of these risk premia. But it strikes me that, obviously, selling puts, just naked selling puts, can leave you massively short tail events in a very, very poor way where you have all the convexity working against you. So what about structuring some sort of trade where you are maybe, I don't want to say safely short, volatility, but short volatility, and you're hedging the wings. You maybe sell an out of the money put in a call, and then you buy some further out of the money puts and calls in an iron condor type trade. Can that be something I would imagine you're clipping your own premium because you're hedging those, you're selling insurance and buying reinsurance, but it does seem like at the very least, if someone were interested in trying to harvest the volatility risk premium, this might be a safer way to do it. It definitely is a safer and more loss-contained way to try to be short volatility. It's quite a popular type of approach. SIBO has an index for this. You can pull it up. Just Google CNDR for Condor. And what you'll see immediately ties us straight back to the regime shift point, where that Condor index steadily made money with a reasonable sharp ratio for a while, and then kind of stopped, and then has just been steadily losing money ever since. And what effectively happened, tie this back to my story about falling volatility risk premium over the last six, seven years, if there's almost no risk premium left in the near the money options, and you're selling those to try to supposedly harvest risk premium, and then you go back and to your point, Corey, clip the wings and spend money to buy back the tails, well, then you're pretty sure that you're just going to be losing money over time because you're doing zero or very small expected return trade on the one hand, and then buying back the wings to make sure you don't get run over, but paying a material premium potentially for that. And that's kind of the result that you've seen the last six, seven years. If the premium has shrunk so much, why not just flip the trade? At this point, if the cost of convexity is so small, why wouldn't I just go out and start buying at the money straddles? And still not with the expectation necessarily of 
positive expected return. I might still expect there to be a very thin risk premium that I'm paying. But if it's so much thinner than in the past, it seems to me like, well, why not? There are absolutely institutions that do that. And often in the context of more complex strategies where they're selling other things. But certainly, you can imagine from my views on short dated options, that as long as there's other parts of the option world that are more expensive, one thing a relative value manager might do is work on strategies that involve buying the thing you think is cheap and selling the thing that's that you think is expensive. And I think that you'll find that among a small handful of volatility arbitrage managers. I think one reason why you haven't seen very broad adoption of that type of strategy is anytime you're buying short dated options, you are paying theta, you're paying time decay. And to some extent, there's an allergy among broad sections of the investment universe to paying meaningful time decay, just on principle, and partly because anybody who didn't really mind that probably went out of business between 2009 and 2013 in an environment where it seemed like there were a lot of risks out there, but yet options were actually very, very expensive. Many long vol type of managers died during those periods. And so there's sort of a cultural allergy to this idea that you look at your risk report and you say, if nothing happens this month, we're going to lose 2% on the fund. And then in terms of real money asset owners and tail hedging type of strategies, so there's very real need and demand for hedging strategies. But typically for a big institutional asset owner, short one-month puts are not an obvious match for their needs. Typically, for an asset owner, you want a relatively simple hedge that's not that dynamic, that you don't have to constantly roll, that there isn't too much kind of path dependence to. So more typically, you'll see hedging demand just for in terms of the practicalities of portfolio managers and what they're looking for. You'll see buying 20% out of the money six-month puts or buying one-year 30% out of the money puts, which you can buy, you can put in the portfolio for six months, and then maybe you'll roll them at some point versus buying a bunch of very short-term puts that are expiring very soon and needing to think about rolling them and constantly trading them and managing the exposure. So let's stay on the topic of tail risk. This is one that feels like it pops up every time there's a tail risk event, which makes sense. You get a bunch of folks who come out and say, look how great tail risk hedging is. You should be doing it all the time. And then you get other folks saying, well, no, look how quiet you were over the last six years. You bled all that money. This doesn't actually make sense when you accumulate all the losses. And there's a lot of papers and a lot of studies out there saying that tail risk is actually overpriced. And then you've got a bunch of practitioners saying, nope, it's underpriced because you can't actually price the tails. And so the question I guess I would pose to you is, should we ever buy it? I mean, naively, I would say, well, doesn't the volatility risk premium, if we believe it's positive, doesn't it ultimately say that tail risk is overpriced? So first of all, it's very important to think clearly about what we mean by tail risk and how that's distinct from volatility just generally or long volatility. And then we'll get into a couple of other things. But buying an at-the-money straddle is a long volatility position or a long volatility trade. But I don't think that any tail manager would describe that as a long tail risk position because an at-the-money straddle has some gamma and some convexity and some exposure to volatility locally that goes away very quickly as you move away from the strike. Tail risk is really about very big events and very asymmetric payoffs in very big events, not about 
kind of local hedging or local volatility exposure. So when we talk to large asset owners about tail risk hedging, a couple different things. First of all, it is entirely a conversation about asset allocation and portfolio risk, not a conversation about the standalone properties of some particular strategy. So when a pension fund is thinking about their asset allocation, they're thinking about the role that every line item plays within that portfolio. And the reason that they think about tail risk hedging typically is that for a large institution, usually at some point for large enough losses in the overall portfolio, you have very disruptive characteristics for the organization that start to kick in. So you had a lot of large pension funds in 2008, for example, once they'd sustained 40% losses in their overall portfolio, literally not having cash to pay benefits and to meet outflow requirements and being forced to sell equities, being forced to sell illiquid private assets and venture funds in the secondary market at five cents on the dollar. So the benefit of having a highly asymmetric strategy and overlay within the portfolio that cuts off that extreme tail risk and therefore dramatically improves potentially the long run portfolio performance by cutting off behavior that you would never want to have to engage in, like selling assets in the secondary market and 10 cents on the dollar because you have to raise cash no matter what, is the role that those kind of strategies play in a portfolio. And if the world makes any sense at all, you should of course expect on a standalone basis, highly asymmetric trades that are negatively correlated with bad states of the world to have a negative expected return over time. It would be crazy if they didn't on average over long periods of time. Because the whole point is assets should have positive expected return if they involve taking bad state of the world risk. You get paid to own equities because equities do well in good times and lose money in bad times. And an asset that's negatively correlated with equity and particularly very negatively correlated with equity when the world is particularly bad, that should have a negative expected return, full stop. But that doesn't mean it doesn't belong in the portfolio. From a portfolio perspective, actually, the long-run expected returns of a portfolio that doesn't have to stop itself out and reduce its risk at the worst times can be very positively enhanced. But then the other key question is, at a point in time, how much is the world charging you for different types of tail risk? And are there opportunities for an asset owner that makes sense given the pricing? And the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. I think typically in the five years after the credit crisis, generally volatility and tail risk was very expensive because many asset owners flooded into tail funds and flooded into insurance buying at any price given how bad that event was and the, how bad the hangover of the memory of 08 was. And in that environment, in many cases, it just made sense for asset owners to take less risk to the extent that they had, they couldn't sustain a 40% loss. But then in the last four or five years, risk premia have generally been very low. A lot of tails have been very underpriced as they've brought in large sellers of tail risk to try to generate carry. And there's all kinds of examples you can get into there. But in that environment, it can make a ton of sense for people to pay a small insurance premium in order to make a lot of money in a sufficiently bad event where the rest of their portfolio is down a lot and therefore avoid the negative convexity of having to sell assets at the lows. When it comes to pricing, is it just as simple as trying to buy the tail risk when volatility levels are low and not buying the tail risk when volatility levels are high. I mean, let's take today, for example, we just had the realized March event. We've got 
the election coming up in October, it seems like realized volatility levels and implied volatility levels for that matter are going to stay elevated. Should someone who doesn't have tail risk today, who's thinking about buying it, just wait and say, nope, it's too expensive because volatility levels are high? So generally speaking, tail risk pricing isn't as nearly as much about volatility levels as it is about the price of the tails, which without getting too wonky, it's going to be related to higher order moments of the distribution and also to different assets and things. So volatility is the second moment of the distribution of returns. It's about sort of your typical daily moves in the underlying equity market, for example. That's not tail risk. That's just kind of what's happening. Tail risk is what's the chance of the market being down 20 or 30%. And that's going to be in options lingo, more about skew at different points in the term structure and about kurtosis. And those things can be related or can be very disconnected from what the level of vol is. So actually the price of tail risk was going down fairly dramatically in late February and early March, even as volatility was rising. And then the prices of tail risk kind of exploded mid-March as you started to have 10% moves to the downside in the equity market. So right now, we're in a world where, depending on where you look, a lot of tail risk that was very cheap two months ago, I guess now it's three months ago, is less cheap now. But you have to survey the whole universe of available opportunities in different kinds of instruments and different kinds of products, understand the flows, understand who's selling what. And certainly in this environment, there are attractive opportunities for asymmetric risk reward that are negatively correlated with equities in the tail. But you have to be careful and discriminating about what you do for sure. Let's say I did want to trade volatility itself and I want to use options. I want to use some of these volatility ETPs that are out there. A lot of the academic papers would suggest that use a $10 word here, volatility is sort of autoregressive, conditional, heteroscedastic process. It's clustering. And when you have high vol, it stays high. And then you get low vol, it goes low, you get mean reverting behavior over time. So when vol is high, why not just short something like VXX? And when vol is low, why not just go long something like VXX with the expectation that, hey, we're going to see a pop in vol. And then when vol goes up, hey, we're going to see vol decline eventually. This seems like a reasonable mean reversionary trade. The key thing that you have to realize here is that over any meaningful period of time, so first of all, the products that you're talking about trading are VIX ETPs, for example, which are just portfolios of VIX futures. And the key thing about VIX futures and the same with commodity futures is that they have term structures associated with them. So there's multiple futures, there's next month's future and two months out future and three months out future. And often there's very non-trivial term structures, so steepness in the term structure, longer term ball trading higher than shorter term ball or vice versa. And actually the risk premium associated with the shape of the term structure is by far the dominant driver of P&L in a VIX futures position over a long period of time, not the change in the level of volatility. And people who aren't used to futures find that very counterintuitive. They just think, well, if I buy vol at 12 and then it goes up to 15, why can't I just make three points? But the way that VIX futures work is in a typical quiet market environment where vol is low, you might have VIX spot at 12 and the front month VIX future might be at 14 and the second month VIX future might be at 15 and a half. 
And when you buy the VIX ETP, it's going to have a weighted average basket of those two front month futures. And over time, if nothing happens, the price of those futures is going to go down. It's going to slide down the term structure down towards fixed spot. And after a month, that first futures, if nothing happens and the VIX stays at 12, that VIX future will settle at 12. And then the second month of VIX future will become the front month and it'll be at 14. And so the P&L associated with owning that front month VIX future is that roll down effect or roll up effect if the term structure is inverted is actually much, much larger when you look at the P&L over time and in VIX futures exposure of a factor than the change in, in the level of volatility. So if you typically, when vol is low, often the term structure is also steep, but not always. And the shape of the term structure is determining the cost of carrying that position. And when you talk about how big is risk premium, that's really a question of, well, how much is the market charging you to hold this VIX futures position at a low level, hoping that it goes up? Vice versa, when vol is elevated, the important question is, sure, you might expect vol to go down, but how much is the market already pricing in terms of how fast vol is going to go down over time? And is that too much or too little? How big is the headwind that you have against you trying to sell vol? And I think you saw that very dramatically in February and March of this year, where as volatility started to rise and the market started to fall, you saw just a flood of money into trying to short VIX futures or short TVIX or VXX or one of these VIX ETNs. And for example, at the end of February, you saw VIX spot at 40 and the front month VIX future, which was expiring in 11 or 12 trading days, trading at 25. So they're, oh, VIX is at 40, you have to short it. But if you sell the VIX future or you buy XIV or Asphyxy or you short VXX, you're selling ball at 25 when VIX is at 40. How much of that term structure do you think is driven by supply and demand effects versus market expectation effects? So historically, when you do the research, and if this is an area of interest to anyone, you should go get the data, get every historical price of every VIX future and do some work. But what you'll find is that it's much more risk premium than it is actual realized expectations and predictive relationship with respect to future changes in volatility. So I want to stay on the same subject of term structure leads me right into my next question, which is maybe it's a bit of a layup for you, a bit of a repeat, but oil had quite a cascading sell-off and I thought it would be a good idea to buy some of that USO ETF. Seemed like a natural play because oil went down. I wanted to play the bounce in oil prices and it didn't work out so well for me. So what are your thoughts? What did I do wrong? I think depending on where you bought it, maybe you've gotten at least some of that back because it has been going up a bit since the last few weeks. But yeah, the same way that VIX ETPs actually reflect an underlying portfolio of VIX futures, buying USO reflects owning a long position in oil futures, particularly in WTI futures. Now, interestingly, it used to always be the case that it reflected just a simple position in front month. WTI futures. That's actually changed in the last several weeks because of how exciting everything was in the oil market. Actually, there had been such large inflows into USO that USO itself started to own just a huge percentage of the outstanding interest in oil futures, and the regulators actually made them sort of restructure the portfolio. But the key thing here is that when you buy USO, you're buying a future and it's rolling down the term structure the same way that a VIX future is. And as oil started to go down, the term structure got very steep. 
And by the way, as inflows came into the USO, that additionally steepened the term structure more because of the buying pressure out at the new on the run front month curve. And so similar to owning a VIX futures position at a very low level of all, but a very steep term structure, that's what was happening in USO. And so it was as if you're buying that front month future, let's call it at 25 bucks. Forget about when oil started to go to negative prices and everything. But with spot oil at 15 bucks and over a one month period, having the tendency of that $25 oil future that you bought to get yanked down to 15 very quickly. So there's just this huge negative carry associated with that position. Now, of course, things can change and very quickly oil prices can go up because of OPEC actions or changes in supply and demand. It's possible that oil will go up fast enough to avoid losing money, but the negative carry on that long oil futures position embedded in USO when the term structure is very, very steep is enormous, right? And then USO actually, I mentioned this, but the regulators forced USO to dramatically restructure their position. Now USO is actually spread out across six or seven different maturities, including a year out the curve. And that negative carry position has been mitigated to some extent. But certainly at the time when we were talking about this, like a month ago, it was a very major issue. I always love chatting with you, Ben, because A, you're a fountain of knowledge, and B, you're always very generous with your time with me. But one of the things I always walk away from our conversations with is the feeling of how dangerous it can be to be a tourist in some of these areas, where if you don't truly understand the subtle nuances of what's going on with the trade, it's something that can really go against you. And it's sort of your unintended bets that you're making that always end up burning you. And I think it's a fair expectation that in markets, you should know what you're trading. But there's all these sometimes subtle and hidden risks that people don't always see on the packaging. And whenever I chat with you with about options, I always walk away going, wow, there's another risk vector that I wasn't thinking about with a given trade or something like that. So let me just ask a really simple question. When should I use options? Because I feel like you're always going to be on the other side of my trades. It very much depends on, of course, the context in which you're making decisions and investing, what kind of a portfolio you're managing. But certainly let's suppose that you have a portfolio that involves holding directional positions in equities or commodities or whatever it is. There's absolutely nothing wrong with considering using options to structure those positions in a way so as to limit the loss that you're taking or to customize to some extent the risk reward profile in the positions that you have. So for example, you might own a stock and that might be pretty reasonable But if you're worried, if you think that beyond some point, the potential upside in a stock is limited. So let's take your example where you own a stock at 50 bucks and you think that, you know, at 70 bucks, it's a good sale and the implied volatility in that option is pretty high and you're actually getting paid a lot to take that. And at the same time, you do think that there's a real risk case where the stock could go down a lot below 50 if the wrong set of things happen. You could look at owning a call spread instead of owning the stock, for example. And a call spread is a type of structure where you can look at the price. Maybe for the 50, 70 call spread, you might have to pay $4, for example. And your max win on that is 20 bucks if the stock's currently at 50. And that's a five to one upside potential. And it's a six month call spread. And you know how much that decay is. And you're comfortable with losing that much money on the position if nothing happens over six months. You know, it's an alternative risk reward profile to just owning the stock. And as long as you're thoughtful about that, and that's an absolutely legitimate 
way to use options. I think that what you have to be careful about is whenever there's a short option in the portfolio, are you being paid a reasonable price for it? Wherever there's a long option position in the portfolio, is the price you're having to pay for what that does for your portfolio reasonable in achieving kind of the objectives of what you're doing? And as long as you're careful and thoughtful about that and keep it simple, there's nothing wrong with using options. In a larger institutional portfolio where you're talking about using different managers, there's nothing wrong with having strategies or managers in the portfolio that are users of options, as long as you evaluate that there's a reasonable investment process behind that. There's nothing wrong with thinking about how to hedge, how to think about hedging tail risk using options, as long as you're careful about it. But I think the key thing, and as you pointed out, is be careful with simple sales pitches and be careful with anyone who's presenting you the idea that there's some free lunch or there's some really obvious simple thing to do where just because you know about options, now you can make your portfolio much better. Be afraid of those kind of pitches and expect that the world's more complicated than you think and make sure you understand the product. One of the things that I often hear when talking to folks who use options frequently is the implied sort of cheapness or expensiveness of a given option. Looking at the implied volatility, you said it there, if you think the option implied vol is cheap or expensive, you might have one trade versus another. How are you thinking about measuring that cheapness? I think for most people who come from like an equity background, they go, okay, I can look at sort of the balance sheet of a company and it's very, I'm trying to measure the intrinsic value of something versus the price of the stock. And then you go to the options world and you go, oh, I've got this derivative that maybe you can do your derivatives math and work out and try to price it. But at the end of the day, the market's priced it at this implied vol. How do you think about trying to say, well, this implied vol is too expensive or too cheap? If you're not a absolute return volatility manager that's really focused on understanding implied volatility, one simple way to think about option prices is just in the context of the probability of different events happening. So if you have a Bloomberg terminal, it has a nice framework for doing this. You can look at, take your example of the $50 stock and this question of $70. Is that a, a, you know, maybe I want to sell the stock there. The options market tells you what the implied probability of the stock getting to 70 bucks over any time horizon is that there's options listed to. And the really simple way to think about it is what if you had a call spread that was very tight call spread right around 70 bucks? like a 69.99701 call spread or something. That call spread is basically just a binary option that pays you a certain amount of money if the stock goes to 70 and otherwise pays you nothing. And so with that intuition, you can figure out what the option market says the probability of an event happening is. And you can forget about implied volatility and realized volatility and skew and all this stuff and you can just say, "Hey, I'm a fundamental analyst. What do I think qualitatively the chances of the stock getting to 70 bucks in six months are? And what does the option market say? And if you think based on your broader analysis that it's a sub 10% chance that the stock gets to 70 bucks in six months and the options market is telling you it's 15% or 20%, that's a reflection of, at least from your perspective, a reasonable risk premium being baked into that option. But if you think the chance is 20% and the option market's saying 5%, then that's a reflection that at least on your fundamental view about a company that the options are too cheap. How much does structural supply and demand imbalance in the market affect those probabilities though? It affects them very heavily. Really those probabilities 
we like to say things like, oh, the market believes X or the market is pricing X, but the market is just a bunch of prices that come from people buying and selling stuff at certain prices. And when a large institution comes in for the month in its overwriting program and sells 20,000 upside calls in June on MGM or whatever it is, that's going to move the price down a whole bunch. And it's going to move the implied probability of that stock going up to that price down by a bunch. And nothing changed other than a transaction in the marketplace and a materialization of supply and demand. We're going to go away from my bad ideas with Ben. Just I want to get your thoughts on some other topics here. Talking about all these programs that are coming to the market and creating supply and demand imbalances. One of the topics that has come up a lot and came up a lot in March was the impacts of structured product desks and what their hedging impact did to the market. And one of the sort of things that kept coming up on Twitter was this net gamma, net gamma, net gamma position. I want to get your thoughts on sort of maybe the way the modern market works. I think there's this perception that news comes out and the equity market centric people focus on what the equity market does and assume that every transaction in the equity market is based on that news event or that fundamental change. And I think sort of over the last 20 years, maybe that's become less and less reality. And I'd love your perspective of how much the day to day is really being driven by hedging flows of structured product desks or options market makers and the like. The answer is always there's some of both, of course. But I think to your point, a lot of people just don't think about the latter at all. So I'll give a couple of examples. One is in the context of what we've been talking about, sort of large option selling flows at the short end of the curve by big real money institutions, call overwriting strategies and put underwriting strategies. So what's the mechanics of that? What actually happens? So large institutional investor, maybe via a manager that they use, sells a whole bunch of call options, one month, 20, 30 Delta call options. They sell them to a market maker, whatever market maker wins the trade. That market maker is going to probably have to hold some of them because it's a really big trade. But over time, they're going to be recycling those options into the market and selling them. And a lot of them will end up at volatility managers, or maybe they'll sell some of them and they'll hold on to some and hedge them with longer term options. Ultimately, the other side of that trade, there will be buyers of those short term options who are owning them and who are delta hedging them, who are market makers, who are volatility arbitrage players. And that's the market providing the service to this end user of derivatives. We have to manufacture that. And the way that that works is guys like me and Goldman Sachs end up owning those options. And when the market goes up, we get longer equity market exposure because we're long a call option that's convex with respect to the market. And in order to hedge the new long market exposure that we get, we have to sell futures or sell the underlying equity. And when the market goes down, we get shorter as a result of being long convexity, and we have to buy to neutralize. So we're not buying because we think we want to buy the market and because it's too cheap, whatever. We're just buying to reduce our risk to get back to flat. And as a result, if the aggregate of these types of programs is very large, and the market makers and volatility arbitrage players in the marketplace are long a lot of short-term options, facilitating the service to the end user of derivatives, we in the aggregate are buying a ton of stock when the market goes down and we're selling a ton of stock when the market goes up. And that's reflecting in some sense, actually something that those pension funds and end users are explicitly thinking about, 
which is they often think of these programs as rebalancing programs. They've been thinking a little bit along the lines of some of your first questions. Well, wouldn't I want to sell some stocks when stocks go up? And wouldn't I want to buy some stocks when stocks go down? Well, yes. So then shouldn't I just sell some options? And when they sell options, effectively, they outsource that rebalancing to the volatility arbitrage community and to market makers. But as a result, that changes market dynamics because, first of all, that dampens realized volatility to some extent, right? Because the market's trying to go down, but a bunch of people just mechanically have to buy it. And vice versa, the market's trying to go up and a bunch of people have to sell it. And depending on what's going on, what option flows have been, where the markets are, that effect is going to be very different in size. But in very quiet market environments over the last couple of years, when ball is low, it could be as big as the marketplace has to buy many tens of billions of dollars of equity when the market's down a percent. And that's really quite meaningful, actually. Uh, so that's one example. And so it may not be a big percentage of total volume, for example, in the S&P, but it's that's directional. So it's one thing to say, oh, the volume in the E-minis was $50 billion today. But that volume, it reflects customer-initiated buys and sells that are probably pretty closely matched. Whereas when we're talking about $50 billion of buying coming from gamma on option positions, that's all buys <laughs> and has a very big market impact. Another example that you gave is structured products. Similarly, so retail structured products get very complicated, but the big theme there is typically retail investors get a coupon in exchange for selling long-term crash risk very deep out of the money puts. There's a lot of like long-term volatility risk associated with that. And banks typically hold and risk manage those positions. And a lot of the trading that happens in long-term options and long-term deep out of the money options every day actually is related to risk rebalancing of those portfolios, not to investors taking a view on those options. This type of thing is very meaningful. How do you think March is going to change your world? Is it going to be something that creates a structural impact on the way, or at least for the next couple of years, perhaps, a structural impact on the way volatility is priced? The base case should be yes. So typically, historically, when you have really major risk-off events that last for some period of time, they do translate into real changes in risk premium on a forward-looking basis, especially when risk premium was very compressed coming into those events. I think that with respect to the pricing of tails, that's probably going to happen to some extent. The reason being tails were very cheap coming into this, largely because there were many very heavily over-levered hedge funds and programs that were explicitly trying to generate returns by selling tail risk that had reduced the price of tail risk. And those guys largely blew up and are gone. And it will take a while for new firms to enter that space. And on the back of that, there's been at least some uptick in demand for tail risk protection, though much less than you might think. For volatility more generally and near the money options and volatility risk premium, I think the jury's still out. Your base case would be that volatility risk premium should also increase on the back of this. And incrementally, you'd think that that would be true. But that said, the big participants or the big cause of the compression of general near-the-money volatility risk premium the last several years has been big real money programs, not over-leveraged hedge funds. And those programs haven't changed and they're not going to change. They've underperformed significantly if you look at call-overwriting and put-underwriting programs uh, relative to S&P, for example. But those aren't programs that blow up. It's just you have a call-overwriting program 
you lose some money, your equities lost some money too, maybe you're disappointed in your returns, but it's not something that a pension fund gets forced out of. And typically, the big participants in these strategies are not people who are looking very closely at return attribution and decomposition and thinking carefully about what risk premium they're getting paid. They just they have some buckets of risk and they're doing some different stuff. And every year they take a look at that. And we have not seen any material changes in the sizes of short-term volatility selling. You see that reflected when you look at the volatility term structure today. The S&P volatility term structure is this very strange upside-down U-shape because asset managers and hedgers are buying three-month, six-month puts to protect their portfolio, but pension funds are selling one-month calls to overwrite. And then the long end, nobody cares about structured products or selling it. So the front is depressed relative to the six-month point. I have to imagine on the structured seller side, there's almost a bureaucratic impediment to stopping those programs. Once those programs get in the portfolios, to actually remove them is a proactive action you have to take. And very often, it's always the path of least resistance, which is, eh, just keep it going. So I have to imagine that that could create either a very long tail to the unwind, that it has to become sort of unfashionable to use those programs again, and sort of takes a couple of years for that to fall through the market, or it just becomes sort of a permanent effect in the market that is, I don't know whether you would call it a distortion or not, but just changes the landscape. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Typically, on a large state pension, it probably takes five years to go from the step of a pension fund consultant trying to educate someone about a strategy and go through the whole educational process and proposals and board approvals and RFPs. And like once a program is going, it's going to take another five years to go through the similar process to stop doing it. Right? So anything you're particularly excited about going forward over the next couple of months or year? One big part of our business is absolute return, chasing down dislocations in derivatives markets and trying to structure trades and investment strategies around that. And certainly in markets where you've had large disruptions and blowups of hedge fund portfolios and huge reallocations of resources, it generally creates very rich pickings for strategies like this. So you know, generally speaking, yeah, we're super excited about that. The other side of our business is you know, what we would describe as solutions or overlays, you know, sitting down with pension funds and trying to understand what they need and how we can help structure bespoke portfolios to hedge risks that they have or help improve the risk-taking, long-risk portfolios that they have. And I think these kinds of events really remind people why a simple 60-40 portfolio has been great for the last 10 years but that a rethink might be warranted because you've got extremely low yields on a forward-looking basis for fixed income. How much defensiveness are you really going to get out of your fixed income portfolio? Equities took a big hit. You get reminded that they go down. Then they rallied back a pretty decent amount to where I don't know that many asset owners that are like super excited about owning the S&P at 3,000 given the risk landscape. So I think that that really opens up a lot of conversations about what they can do differently. So I think from our perspective, it's a great environment for both of those. Well, Ben, it's been a pleasure chatting with you again. I'm glad we were able to do this. I certainly know I learned things. It afforded me the opportunity to ask you dumb questions, which I would have asked you anyway. So this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming and joining. Awesome, man. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. 